We are picking back up with our study of the sermon letter to the Hebrews this morning. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you can find that passage on page 1283. Now, it's been several weeks since we were looking last looking together at Hebrews, somewhat more weeks than I had initially planned, thanks COVID, but that's all right, we're back now. Uh, let me remind you of the shape of where we've been thus far. The author is addressing a group of Christians from a primarily Jewish uh, background, Old Testament Jewish background, most likely living in Palestine itself. Um, we don't know exactly who, we don't know exactly when, we don't even know exactly where, and we don't know who exactly who wrote, wrote it, other than that it was inspired by the Lord. But based on what it is written here, this congregation was st- suffering stiffening, increasing persecution. And as the years passed without Christ's return, he had said he was coming back soon, and it seems like soon is getting longer and longer away. As the years passed without his return, at least some of them were wondering if maybe they hadn't been taken in. They maybe had believed a lie. Maybe it would be better to just avoid the hassle of the persecution and the struggle and the trial and just go back to temple worship. Go back to the Levitical system of the Old Testament. So Hebrews, the book, has been addressing the core rationale for continued faith and faithfulness and especially for endurance. As we'll see in today's passage, that boils down to that rationale boils down to Jesus actually accomplished what the Levitical system could only promise but not do. And he gives it to us for free. Now, I would be bet that would bet that no one here is tempted to return to Judaism, right? I don't think any of us started in Judaism. But that said, these concerns resonate with us, don't they? If you're at all like me, you have that at least sometimes that niggling fear in the back of your mind, what if I've been fooled and this is all a lie? Especially as things get hard and increasingly hard, as the culture around us pushes against God's revealed truth more and more and more boldly, it would be much easier either to go along with everything the culture wants or alternately, to reject everything the culture wants. Which really comes down to the same thing. In both cases, we're defining ourselves by the culture around us instead of by the Lord. Why can we trust Jesus? What shape should our lives take if we do trust Him? These are the central questions that the book of Hebrews is answering. And they're the central questions, especially in our passage this morning, short though it is. Before I read, though, this is God's Word, of course. And so we need to ask Him to be present among us and to open our eyes and to speak to us through it. So if you're able now, please stand with me as I pray for the Holy Spirit to be among us and then remain standing as I read from Hebrews chapter 10. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray that You would be present among us. We are turning to Your Word because only in Your Word is truth. And yet our hearts are so hard. We are so drawn away by what we see around us all day, every day, the air that we breathe, the water in which we swim. Our hearts are so hard. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would send your word and your spirit like a hammer to break the rocks of our hearts, to break up our hearts and to soften them, to make them wholly yours. Open our eyes, open our minds that we would understand what you're teaching us here, what you're showing us, what you're revealing about yourself here. And more importantly, soften our hearts, that we would believe it, that we would trust it, that we would trust your truth and live it out in practical, tangible ways because of what you teach us today. We need your Spirit on us and among us this morning. Give us yourself, Lord, for we die apart from you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. This is God's Word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. How do we know in this life, how do we know what to value, what to place importance and wait on in this life? How do we know? Related, how do we know why we know those things? How do we know what behaviors and actions most appropriately flow from those things which we value most? How will we be shaped by those things that we hold most important? How do we know? It will not surprise you to learn that a recent poll has found a significant shift in what Americans value. In the late 1990s, Americans of various ages said overwhelmingly that patriotism, hard work, belief in God, and having children were the things that they valued most, that were most important to them. Twenty-some years later, hard work remains strong, but the other three have dropped off dramatically. Among American teens, this study that came out a couple of years ago found that 95% say that a job or career that they enjoy would be extremely or very important to them as an adult. 81% said the same thing about helping others in need. 50% said having a lot of money would be important. Certainly would make things easier, right? 39%, only 39%, and that was the highest of those three that dropped off, 39% thought that having children would be most important. It's a significant change. Now, for their part, millennials, many millennials at least, that's, in case you're curious, that's roughly born between 1981 and 1996, so came of age around the time of the turn of the millennium. Millennials roughly are buying into the work 80 hours a week for us because we're changing the world rhetoric, 
which was popularized by Silicon Valley. But even those who are skeptical of that mindset are nonetheless working their tails off. One author put it in a popular article just before the pandemic, we put up with companies treating us poorly because we don't see another option. We don't quit. We internalize that we're not striving hard enough and we get a second gig. Did you hear it? We're not happy working ourselves to death, but it's all we know, so let's work more and maybe that'll make us happy. If this were a small-scale phenomenon happening only in a few local areas, that'd be one thing. It'd be a problem, but it'd be, it'd be a smaller problem. But it's nationwide. It's even worldwide. Whole generations who are understanding themselves, who am I, and the world around them, wholly through the lens of a job or, a vo- or volunteerism, what we do. What we do is defining how we understand what we are, who we are, rather than seeing what we do as the result of who we are. We have a discipleship problem, and it's not a small one. Speaking of discipleship, I watched a movie about discipleship uh, recently. Now, you'd never know that it was discipleship, about discipleship, looking at the blurb or watching the preview. You might not even recognize it. In fact, you probably wouldn't recognize it, even if you watched the whole movie. And yet, that's precisely what it was talking about. It's the story of a chef named Carl who gets stuck in a rut at, at, a, at his job. He was the, the chef de cuisine, the head chef at a fine restaurant in L.A., uh, and then had a, had a blow-up with a critic, uh, a very public blow-up, and ended up getting fired over it. Uh, and then the movie is him having to rethink what he wants and how he's going to live his life and what he's going to do and ends up uh, buying a food truck, which he you know buys in Miami and has to drive all the way back across the country uh, with his... Uh, sous chef that he trained and the 11 or 12 year old son uh, that he begins to have a better relationship with. On the surface, the movie is all about cooking. It's all about the culture of the kitchen and how Chef Carl gets back on his feet. Looked at another way, it's a movie exploring the relationship between a father and a son uh, and even the, the semi-father-son relationship between Carl and his sous chef, as it were, the, the man that he trained. And that gets a little closer, but at heart, this is a movie about training someone in a culture, training them in a mindset. In one particularly telling scene, the, the three, the sh- Carl and Martin, the sous chef, and, and their, his, uh, Carl's son, are cooking Cubano sandwiches for this a team of guys who had helped them load the oven and the other heavy things into the back of the food truck as they were kind of getting ready there. Um, along the way, Carl has taught his son how to work the, the sandwich press. If you're familiar with making Cubans, you know, you put the meat in there and then you stick it in the press and it heats it from both sides. It's a great sandwich, but whatever. Um, in the hubbub of cooking all of these sandwiches for this group of guys, his son opens the press and one of the sandwiches has gotten burned and he's like, oh, it's fine, you know, just go ahead and serve it. They're not paying for it anyway. And Carl and Martin are both like, whoa, 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 hang on, stop. Carl said, Martin, you take, take over here, you cook here and I'm, I'm going to go talk to him. And he and his son go stand outside the, the food truck there and they start talking. 
And Carl, the, the conversation boils down to, look, there's a lot that I'm not good at, but I'm good at this, and I want to share it with you. I love this, and I think if you give it a shot, you might love it too. Yes, chef. Now, should we have served that sandwich? No, chef. And then they go back in and they cook some. It's a quick moment. It's easy to run right past, not even notice. But Carl stopped everything in the midst of a very busy moment to have this conversation. Now, that in itself demonstrates the importance that he attaches to it. Carl is teaching his son to value what to value, why to value it, and what behaviors and actions must flow from those things that he values. Now, in the nine and a half chapters of Hebrews that we've looked at so far, the author has been laying out the theological groundwork, the foundation, demonstrating what is true about Christ and consequently about the believers in this congregation. Our passage this morning manages to summarize the first nine chapters in two verses, which is impressive all by itself. Uh, It takes a, a good bit of skill right there, but he does. Then begins to look at how those truths should affect the lives of this congregation, should affect the lives of believers. His application comes, his points come down to three words, and you're going to find these real familiar, right? Faith, hope, and love. That is the essence of these three points. He boils down the application of the entirety of what Jesus has done, the application in the life of these believers comes down to faith, hope, and love. We'll take those in order. But first, Before we jump into that, just to be completely clear, these are applications built entirely on the foundation of the work of Christ, as we see in verses 19 to 21. Because Jesus serves as our high priest, making atonement for our sin, cleansing us of the pollution that results, verse 21, and because Jesus has opened the way to God, given us access the heavenly holy of holies, to the throne room of the king of kings by his blood, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, application. We're going to be talking a lot about the ways that we respond to the work of Christ, especially as we, in coming weeks as we look more and more at this section of the book of Hebrews. We're going to be talking about these application points and how we respond. And it would be easy for me to sound like I'm saying, here's how you can earn favor with God. You want to be right with God? Here's what you do. Do these things so that God will love you. It would be easy for me to sound like that. It would be easy for you to hear that. But that is not at all what's going on here. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is not about how we earn favor with God, but rather how we respond to the grace and the mercy that Jesus has purchased for us by His blood. Christian, you have access to God. Your hearts are washed clean from an evil conscience. You are adopted as children of God. You already have union with Christ and all the blessings and benefits that come with that union. Those things are true of you already. Christian, period. 
whether you live out the implications of those truths well or terribly, they are true of you, and your response cannot invalidate the truth that already exists. Your status before the Lord cannot change because you were not given that status based on what you had done or based on what you would do or based on what you might have been able to do at some point in the theoretical future. It's based solely on what Christ did, and that won't change. It is finished. It is done. We have to put the arrows on the flow chart going the right direction, right? What is true about you, what is true about you leads to what we do. What we do does not lead to what is true. Respond because they're true. They are not true because we do something. That's the first caveat. The second caveat moves in the other direction. Why does this need to be said at all? Christ has said that He is sanctifying us, that He will glorify us. If He's said it and He'll do what He says, why do I need to pay any attention to responding? He's going to do it for me, right? Not exactly. Simply put, sanctification is, bear with me, not automatic. From God's perspective, yes, it is a work of the Holy Spirit in you, leading you to holiness and growing you in grace, and it will happen. God will sanctify you. God will, by His Spirit, glorify you because of the work of His Son. It will happen. But there is a world of difference between being dragged along, kicking and screaming, digging your heels in the whole way, and following happily because we must, because we trust, excuse me. Both methods, both pathways arrive at the same place. You will be sanctified. You will be glorified. But one results in a whole lot more grief along the way. If you dig in your heels and refuse to live out the implications of your faith, you will still be sanctified because it is a work of the Holy Spirit but you will grow more and you will grow more quickly and you will be more joyful in Christ the more you actively pursue holiness in living out the implications of your faith. Thus, the exhortations here in this passage and in el- elsewhere in Scripture. It's not that you have to do these things so that you'll be sanctified, so that you'll be glorified. That will happen because God is faithful. Rather, it is is best for us to trust the Lord and run alongside Him rather than dragging ourselves backward, kicking and screaming while He pulls us along. It is best for us to participate with Him. So, let's look at the exhortations, right? As I said, they're framed by the rubric of faith, hope, and love. But they could also be seen as believing, confessing, and worshiping. Same set of exhortations. The first exhortation is that our faith should be active, as it were, put feet on faith. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. The language of draw near is used in the Old Testament, I believe exclusively, but certainly predominantly, of coming into the presence of a deity. 
We talked before about how we have access to God because of the sacrifice of Christ in our place. The emphasis here is on assurance of faith working out in actual action. Now, you've heard the old illustration, gets used a lot, become cliche at this point because it works, because it's really good. The illustration of faith demonstrated in a chair. If I say, if I look at that chair and I say, I believe that chair will hold me up, I have faith. But my faith is demonstrated when I put my full weight on the chair, right? When I actually act on the basis of that faith. The proof of our faith in the cleansing and atoning work of Christ is in our entering into the presence of God. Now, why do I say that? That's where the danger lies. We are sinful beings. He is a holy God. Those two things don't mix well together. Remember, in Levitical worship, only the high priest could enter into God's presence in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest, just the one guy, only once a year, only after extensive preparation and washings and sacrifices and whatnot to make him acceptable for that five-minute window when he would come in and offer the sacrifice one day a year. It took a ton to make that that one guy acceptable in God's sight. Remember Isaiah. Isaiah, in chapter 6 of of his book, enters God's presence in a vision. And what happens? What is his immediate response? Woe is me, I am being unmade, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am a sinner, and He is holy, and those two things can't go together. I am being unmade. This is the risk, this is the danger. If you enter the presence of God and you have not been cleansed of your sin, you will be destroyed. So the proof of our faith is, are we willing to enter God's presence on the basis of Christ's blood? If His blood is sufficient, then we can enter His presence with joy and be accepted. It's not, then we're doomed because we're still in our sin. Now every believer has full access, full access at any time without any further preparation to the Holy God. So the first application of the gospel in our lives is seen in entering the Lord's presence confidently, excitedly, actively trusting the blood of Christ to cover your sins, to cleanse you, to make you right with the Lord. So here's the question. Do you take advantage of that access? Do you go into the presence of your holy God as much as you can now that the way is opened? Or do you take that access for granted? ho-hum, no big deal. It's always there. I can go anytime, so I'm not going to. It's fine. Or worse, do you treat it as a chore, something to be checked off the list each day? I'll be honest, for myself, most often it becomes kind of a chore. Oh, I I, I have to make sure that I read my Bible today. I have to make sure that I've spent some time praying today so that I'll be a good Christian. It's a chore instead of a delight. 
check those things off my daily to-do list. Brothers and sisters, let us each draw near to God, delighting in Him, confident that the cleansing accomplished by Christ is completely sufficient to cover all your sins, giving you the privilege of access to the King of kings, the holy God of everything, the one who created by a word. You have access. Let us draw near together with him. The second exhortation here is framed, as I said, by hope, but not simply hope. It is the confession of our hope. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Excuse me. In a sense, this could be read as little more than a restatement of the first exhortation. Believe in Christ. Really, I mean it. But if we look at it that way, we're missing the mark. The first exhortation is about your relationship with the Lord, about your being made clean inside and out by the blood of Christ sprinkled over you, about your access to God directly without an intermediary. Now, this is also about... Uh, our hope, but the focus here shifts a bit. In verse 22, the focus is on our drawing near to God in faith. In 23, the focus is confessing our hope. It's the same hope, right? That, the hope doesn't change. It's the same faith in both places. But where 22 is upward facing, facing from you to the Lord, 23 is outward facing. If we truly believe what we say we believe, then we will confess that belief, that hope before a watching world. But what does that mean? Is the author here talking about evangelism? Because, I mean, that seems like that's what he's talking about. That's the language of confession, right? Confess before the watching world means I'm going to go and talk about Jesus with my next door neighbor. I think that that's possible. Certainly, it's a valid application of what's going on and what the author is touching on here. But I think that his focus here is a little different than our context and what we think of. Remember that this congregation is facing increasing stiffening pressure to uh, stiffening persecution, greater and greater pressure to recant the faith, to turn away from Christ. Now look again at 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, without wavering. This is not the language of evangelism, though, as I say, I think that's a valid application of this, but it is rather the language of endurance. This is the language of endurance. Remember the focus of the letters to the churches. If you've read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, kind of set up the whole shape of the book of of Revelation. We'll get there at some point. Uh, But the the letters to the churches, the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, it's all about enduring faithfully in holding fast to our confession without wavering. As an aside, when you look at those letters in Revelation, you see, he who conquers a lot. And the definition there, this is the definition of conquering in those, those letters. And here, it is simply enduring faithfully. It is enduring faithfully. This is an outward-facing posture of humble 
but firm confidence in what we have confessed. We do hold fast. We are able to hold fast to it despite whatever tribulations, whatever persecutions come our way, not because we are strong, not because we are faithful, not because we are theological giants. We hold fast. What does it say? Because He who promised is faithful. God is faithful to do what He said He would do. He did not say that we'd have easy lives with all good things and no trouble, right? And that's actually good. Um, if, if we just confess His name, we'll, we'll have great lives and we'll be happy and healthy and everything will be great and all of our family will be healthy and it'll be wonderful, right? That's what He told us. No, not at all. Rather, He said, I mean, it would have been nice if that were the promise, but it isn't that. Instead, Jesus warns us, this is John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. And that's actually comforting, right? Because that's my experience of the world. I have not mostly experienced peace and happiness and good times and, you know, sunshine and daisies and everything. Mostly what we've experienced in this world is hardship, hard things. And yes, happiness and joy in the midst, but mostly our experience of the world is touched by hardship a lot. And so it's comforting that when we face genuine persecution for our faith or even just the hard things that happens because sin exists in the world, It's only what we were told to expect. Jesus told us that this is what was going to happen. And it's especially comforting when we remember the rest of the quote, right? In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus' promise is not ease, but full redemption and glory. And what He has promised, He will do. When we face hardships, and you will, when you face hardships, whether the normal trials of life in the world or more pointed attack for, your, for the sake of Christ, when you face those hardships, brothers and sisters, let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering because He who promised is faithful. Now that all sounds great. How do we do that? How does that work? How do we make that happen? Are we really, I mean, because both of these have kind of been my faith in Jesus, and, you know, are we really just alone before the Lord? Is that how this works? Is faithfulness truly an individual project? Faith Faith here is clearly about my relationship with God. Hope, even if it is outward facing, is still my confession of uh, that hope, the hope that Christ purchased for me. How do I do these things? How do I continue to do them when it gets hard? This is where verses 24 and 25 are so, so important. Remember what Paul said in Corinthians? Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. That's true here, too. Obviously, faith and hope are indispensable. You cannot be a Christian without them. But if you're trying to stand alone, if you're trying to hold yourself up in your faith and your hope by yourself, you will fall. Guaranteed. 
preacher in Ecclesiastes says, Woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. We are created to be in community. We are created to hold each other up and encourage one another. Look at verses 24 and 25. Let me read this again. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a strong statement. The verb that gets translated here in most versions as stir up, most commonly in the Scriptures is used of provocations to anger. And most often of that which provokes the Lord to anger. Let us provoke one another, not to anger, but to love and to good works. To so pinprick each other, if I can put it this way, that we're driven not to anger, but to love, to good works. It's an interesting inversion of that that word and that metaphor, isn't it? We need each other to live faithfully before the Lord. And as much as as 25 makes clear, the context here is not simply friendships or similar one-on-one relationships. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Those are good things. You should be in those. Uh, Those are absolutely vital. They're not the main focus here. The main focus here is not one-on-one friendships. As important as those things are, That's not the focus. The focus here is on corporate worship, coming together to worship the Lord and be encouraged together. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be in this particular context. We worship the Lord when we gather together in a lot of circumstances, in a lot of contexts, but the point here is that we are gathering for a purpose, to worship the Lord. As you know, I went to General Assembly a couple of weeks ago. It was a good week. It was a very busy week, but it was a good week. The best part, though, the best part, at least for me, was the worship services. 2,500 to 3,000 men and women wholly focused on Christ, singing praises to God together, confessing together with one voice the confession of our faith, the hope that we have. It is overwhelming. You cannot imagine what it is to be standing shoulder to shoulder with 2,500 to 3,000 other people worshiping God together. We are encouraged simply by being together, worshiping the Lord. Opening the Word together to learn and grow in sanctification together. Now, obviously it's GA. There were certainly disagreements. There were debates. There were even sharp debates. Different points during the week. That's the way it goes. You know, people feel strongly about things, and so there's sharp debates and disagreements. But throughout the disagreements, despite the debates, every night we were drawn back to the reality that everyone there was pursuing faithfulness to Christ together. We need each other. We need each other. We are created to be in community, in communion with one another. We are created to relate to Christ together as a corporate body, not just individually, me and Jesus. That's an important aspect. The Lord knows you personally. He knows your name. He calls you by name. But then He calls you into the corporate body to worship Him together, to be mutually encouraged and edified or built up together 
We are the means, one of the means, by which God grows each other. We are created to relate to Christ together, not just individually. I'm not a prophet. You know that. That said, it certainly seems like we are beginning to enter into a time of increasing strife and even increasing persecution. Our calling in the midst of that is to conquer, but not what the world would call conquering. Jesus conquered the world by dying. Jesus grew the church through his disciples over and over and over again in untold numbers of cities and nations around the world and across time, not by victory as the world counts it through militaries and laws and governments, but by death. Specifically, by faithfulness unto death. Brothers and sisters, we are not called to pursue death, obviously. We are called to hold fast to our confession in faith that the Lord is true, that He is faithful, that he, what He has told us, what He has accomplished is real. Hold fast to that and encourage one another in that, even to the point of death, if it becomes necessary. Are we being formed by our discipleship, by our study of God's Word, by our relating and worshiping with each other? Are we being formed by that to go out with an army and conquer? Or are we being formed to endure when persecution comes? One of those is godly. One of them is not. Christ is the high priest over the house of God, making His people clean inside and out. Christ is growing His church in each of us and in all of us. He is faithful. He will bring it about whatever trials and tribulations and persecutions and whatever else we face in the meantime. He who promised is faithful no matter what the world throws at Him, no matter what the world throws at us. He who promised is faithful. He will do it. And because He is, because He is faithful, let us draw near to God in full assurance of faith entering into the presence of the King of Kings. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope and let us provoke one another to love and to good works so that we may glorify God in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, whether plenty or nothing, whether ease or persecution or even death. Let us work together, let us come together to in faith and hope and love to glorify our Lord by our confession and our endurance. For this is the call, this is the response to the gospel that we are called to in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are faithful. At the end of the day, that's the whole ball game. We thank you that you are faithful. We are distracted by persecution. We are distracted by hardship. We are distracted by other things that have nothing to do with the faith. We are distracted. We are drawn to take our eyes off of you, and yet you draw us back. 
and call us to draw near to you, to enter your presence with thanksgiving and joy, to worship you with whole hearts, to hold fast to what you have taught us about yourself and what you have done. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us faithful, that you would lead us to live out the exhortations that you have put in your word here, We pray that you would lead us to live out the kind of radical humility, bold humility even, that your people have demonstrated time out of mind in hundreds and thousands of places around the world and throughout the ages. Pray that you would make us faithful. Give us grace to endure. And having done all to stand. Lord, we pray that you would make us conquer by your blood. Not just the right goal, but we want to do what you want done the way you want it done. And we need your grace for that, Lord. We are so tempted to try and do your work our way, and it doesn't ever work. Pour yourself out on us, Lord. Draw us into full communion with you and with each other. Sanctify us by your blood, by your word, by these sacraments that you put before us. Make us more like you and be pleased to work through us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.